All right, let's see. I'm going to go ahead and read you uh, the 124th Psalm before we have our sermon today. This is a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. When their wrath was kindled against us, then the waters would have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul. Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? All right, our sermon today is from uh, Ruth chapter 4. We're starting our last chapter of uh, the book of Ruth. And uh, we're going to read just the first six verses today. This is entitled, To Perpetuate the Name of Elimelech. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to her brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will, but if you will not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from the root from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. <clears throat> now, I'll tell you that um, yesterday I went to mission work and I was with Jim at lunch afterward. And uh, during lunch, Jim said to me, you know, last week's sermon, it went so quickly. He said it was almost over before we started. I couldn't believe it. And I went home and I thought about that. And I thought, you know, I don't want to do that to anybody where they feel gypped. And so instead of a 20-page sermon, I've now got a 47-page sermon. So we'll be here until about 1 or 2 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> I hope you plan for that. Not really. What are some excuses for someone to fail to take necessary action when it is within their ability to accomplish that action? I can think of some right now. Greed, fear, pride, stupidity, arrogance, superstition. Hatred, those are some reasons that come to mind immediately. Within the past few years, the United States president failed to act on and support a movement which was occurring in a terrorist nation, Iran. If that movement had taken root and if it had prevailed, there may have been a new leadership and an easing of world tensions. Also, they may have been a little bit more aligned with the common interests of the United States and her allies. But for several of the above-mentioned reasons, he failed to act. Since that time, the situation in the Middle East has actually spun out of control and the world is a far, far less stable place. One of the most prevalent reasons for people to not act is superstition. There are a lot of people that live by the horoscope and they won't do certain things if they get a bad word for the day. People are afraid of certain numbers. 13 is a very common one here in America. The number four is two. In China, the number four has almost the same pronunciation as the word for death. And so nearly an entire nation is paralyzed by what is known as tetraphobia, the fear of four. 
They would rather not act on something necessary than do it for uh, if the number four is somehow involved. And I know this personally because I lived in Malaysia and I lived in the Chinese district of Malaysia. And any house that had the number four on it, it was empty. They didn't even want to move in there. The list of phobias is long and it's very complex, but it is real. Unlike some phobias, which are not grounded in superstition, the ones that are become sinful because they fail to rely on God's overarching providence and his attention for us. Instead, they demonstrate a fear that he is not in control and that in acting, even if it is in accord with his will, is not our first priority. The prophets of Israel spoke of these things and told what the cure and the remedy for them is. And that takes us to our text verse today, which is from the book of Isaiah chapter 8. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Instead of seeking answers in horoscopes or mediums, and instead of failing to act out of superstitious fears, we are told to seek the Lord. As Isaiah says, to the law and to the testimony. In order to seek the Lord and to be in his will, we have to actually do something. It's called opening it up and studying it and then following its precepts. Today, we're going to see someone superstitiously turn away from following the law of the Lord in order to protect his earthly inheritance. What a shame it is for him. He enters the pages of redemptive history and he fades from them as well without ever being mentioned by name all because of superstition. Instead of being obedient to the law and becoming a great name, he fades into the unknown obscurity of history. Let us not be found in such a bad state. Instead, let us follow the Lord. Let us trust the Lord and be obedient to his word above all else. The way we do these things is to know his word. And so let's turn to that superior word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today, as I normally do. The first today is at the gate of Bethlehem, which is verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 begins with, now Boaz went up to the gate. Now Boaz went up. In the previous chapter, we read this as spoken by Naomi. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Ruth went down to the threshing floor, and now Boaz goes up to the gate. But I want you to know that elevation is not always a consideration when going up or going down in the Bible. Rather, the importance of an area often indicates a higher position, regardless of the elevation. In the Bible, anytime somebody is going towards the land of Canaan, they are always said to go up, regardless of elevation or direction on the compass. When someone goes towards Jerusalem, they are always said to go up in the same way. The same is true with leaving either area. The Bible will then say that they are going down. In Genesis 46, here's a great example of what's going on. Joseph left the place where he was to go up to, okay, which is Goshen. And then when he left Goshen to go back to where he was and to speak to Pharaoh, he went up in the opposite direction. The first was up in direction towards Canaan because Goshen was on the way there. The second was up in legal elevation toward the royal throne. And so it is said to be going up in a courtly sense. 
Now, this might sound unimportant, but the words are intended to get us to think through what's going on and not haphazardly skip them over. Boaz went up to the gate because the gate is the place of judgment. Whether the threshing floor was actually lower than the gate or whether it wasn't is not as important as the fact that the gate is where the matter will be decided upon that was decided at the threshing floor just the night before. The gate is where it's going to be adjudicated. Verse 1 continues, and sat down there. The gate and walls of Middle Eastern cities usually are built out of stone, and the gate normally has an arched entrance with deep recesses on each side. In these recesses, what they did is they built seating where people could relax, they could conduct business, they could guard if necessary, and they could also judge cases and all kinds of other reasons why they would do this. These recesses would be in the shade, and they'd also catch any breezes coming in and out of there as well, because you've got this big area and all of a sudden a little hole, and so this breeze just naturally goes through it. On many other occasions throughout the Old Testament, the gates are noted as the place of judgment, commerce, and activity. The judges of the city would spend their time there at the city gates. Boaz set out to get to the gate early in order to make sure that he would be there before the person that he intended to see would pass through on his way to work, probably out in his own harvest field. If he misses this guy, then it might not be until the end of the day that he would have a chance to see him again, passing through the gate as he went home for the evening. Okay, There in the city gate, the place of judgment, Boaz waited for the case to be presented and then decided. Verse 1 continues, And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And behold, it says, in Hebrew, vehine. The thought is prefixed to this section of the verse here to show that sure enough, the man Boaz had hoped to see had come. The hand of God was ensuring that Boaz was up and at the gate early enough to be there when this most important moment would come to pass. The close relative, also known as a goel, meaning the one who had the first right of redemption, came by just as anticipated. The matter would be settled today just as Boaz had promised Ruth in the dark hours of the previous night there at the threshing floor. Verse 1 going on. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend. Sit down here. The very fact that Boaz was sitting at the gate was plain enough of a declaration that he sought out the settlement of a judicial matter. The language used here was a form of judicial summons. The words that he uses are, Come aside, friend. Sit down here. In Hebrew, the word translated as friend is peloni almoni. They are words that have no equivalent value in the English language, but they are a way of addressing a person, a definite, specific person, without specifying his name. The Greek translation of this verse calls him the hidden one. The words come from two other Hebrew words. Peloni comes from pala, which means to identify or to distinguish or to specify. So he's identifying this guy. The second word, which is almoni, comes from alam, which means to bind or be silent or be speechless. And so he's hiding something. This then gives the twofold sense of identifying a person while concealing him at the same time. The only other two times that this phrase is used in the Bible are in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 2 Kings chapter 6. And both of those times, it's referring to a known place which is not named. A good way of understanding this phrase would be to think of a mountain range that's full of caves, okay? In one of those caves, there's gold. If someone wanted me, and only me, to know where the gold was, he'd take me and he'd show me. If someone else asked me where I was working when I brought in this bag full of gold, I would say, oh, in such, a, such, such and such a cave over in the mountains there. I have revealed 
but I have also concealed. I'm working in the mountains and in a cave, but I ain't telling which and I ain't telling where. In this statement, Boaz has revealed to the man that he has identified him, but concealed who he is in relation to the circumstances which he intends to relay. Hence, the man knows that this is a judicial type of summons. Throughout the meeting, his name isn't going to be given at all. As we're going to see, he is concerned much more about preserving his own inheritance, which includes his own name, and yet his name is lost to history, buried in the grave of unending oblivion. The irony in the Bible is often palpable. However, at the same time as showing a mark of contempt for this guy, it is also somewhat a mark of grace. Because he will not fulfill the duty of a kinsman, according to the law, he should rightfully be openly and publicly disgraced. However, by concealing his name, the shame of the situation is in part hidden from us as well. Verse 1 goes on, so he came and sat down. Knowing that he has been summoned for a legal matter, this Goel, this kinsman redeemer, came to his place at the court of adjudication and took his seat. Whatever the matter is, he shows no sense of fear by claiming urgent business elsewhere or by putting the matter off. He is there at a time when he is unaware of what's going on, but he's not showing any reticence, in other words. So he, he's just, you know, okay, whatever this guy has to say, I'm going to do it. Otherwise, like I say, he would have looked at his clock and said, gee whiz, i got to go right now. So he knows that it's a friendly type of adjudication. That's the point I'm trying to give you there. All right, verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city. Now, there is absolutely nothing in the law to require this action here. The law merely states, even in the most severe of all matters, that two or three witnesses are all that are needed to testify to that matter. As Paul states concerning these things, even in the New Testament, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. This builds on Jesus' words from Matthew 18, which repeats the same thought, and he gets that from the law. The elders of the city were authorized to handle matters such as this one. Deuteronomy 25 deals specifically with the issue, but no set number of elders is given. Because two or three witnesses is the only expected standard required for establishing a matter under the law, then there must be a reason why the Bible says that Boaz specifically called ten men of the city to be witnesses. In the first chapter, it said that Naomi and her family dwelt ten years in Moab. At that time, we looked at what the number ten signifies. Now we need to do that again. According to E.W. Bollinger, in his book, Number and Scripture, he shows that the number ten signifies the perfection of divine order. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. The Bible is asking us then to reflect on what is complete. What is the perfection of divine order that this account is picturing? What are these ten men picturing who are asked to sit and witness for or against the unnamed and yet known Goel, the nearer kinsmen? These are the questions that the Bible is asking us to consider. Verse 2 goes on, and said, sit down here. So they sat down. In agreement to the call of Boaz, these witnesses will be at hand during the presentation of the matter. In essence, they will testify to what occurs, witnessing for or against the interested parties as the matter is resolved. How it will be resolved is what is now to be determined. My inheritance, O God, is only you. Nothing more will my heart ever seek, for only you are faithful and true. You care for the lowly, the humble, and the meek. I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that in him my hope is found. 
I trust the surety that his redemption gives. No other place of refuge can ever be found. In Christ alone will I hope and trust. To him alone will I set my gaze. It is Jesus, my Lord, who is faithful and just. He is my sure hope now and for all my days. Which brings us to our second thought. I will redeem. Verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 begins with, Then he said to the close relative, It is Boaz who is called, and it is Boaz who speaks first to present the matter at hand. If, as we have seen, Boaz pictures Christ, then who is the nearer relative? This one who has the first right of redemption. He's nearer to Naomi than Boaz. And so Boaz must defer to him first in order to ensure proper legal position is maintained. In God, there is no unrighteousness. In God, there must be a proper satisfaction of the law. There can be no skirting around an issue. Justice must be served because God is perfectly pure, he's holy, and he's righteous. Christ is our redeemer, but there must be an order and a propriety in how he redeems. This is evidenced by Boaz's proper handling of the matter, which must be decided. Verse 3 going on. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab. It is a legal matter. It involves the Goel, and it is now known to involve Naomi. Naomi's only been back in the land for a very short time, a few months at most. She is a widow who has been gone for an extended period of time to a foreign country. These are the facts presented to the unnamed individual thus far. Verse 3 continuing, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. In these words in the Hebrew, the tense is perfect. In other words, whether she actually sold it or whether she intends to sell it, in her mind, it is as if it's already sold. It's a done deal. This has occurred because she cannot maintain it for herself. She's destitute and she needs the money from the sale of the land in order to support herself. The land is then noted to be that which belonged to our brother Elimelech. If you remember what his name means, you might be able to see what's happening here. His name means either God is king or God is my king. One of those two. Either way, he is an Israelite and God is his king. He lived during the time of Israel's theocracy. Boaz calls him our brother indicating that they are closely related to him and in a position to rectify whatever the situation required of them through the law. In this, he never mentions Ruth, even though Ruth is a participant in what's occurring as well. Because Ruth married Naomi's son, she's entitled to take part in whatever has occurred. But because she's a Gentile, and this would involve a marriage to her, she's not named in the proceedings at this point. The matter at hand will first deal with Naomi and her inheritance, which came from Elimelech to her. Once that proposition is settled, then the second matter can be addressed. Some scholars, such as the Cambridge Bible Commentary, a bunch of you know highbrow uh, scholars up at Cambridge, incorrectly argue that Naomi had no right to sell the property. Their words are this. This was not in accordance with Pentateuchal law, meaning the five books of Moses, which say nothing about the inheritance of widows. In other words, the law of Moses gives Naomi no such right according to them. In Numbers 27, this, however, is written concerning such an inheritance. It says there, And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him and his family, and he shall possess it. 
These instructions were given to ensure that the property of the family remained within the family. Naomi is the closest relative and the inheritance is hers as long as she's alive. The issue of the family name is separate from the issue of the land, although they are closely tied together as well. And this is going to be seen as we continue. Verse 4, And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. The words, I thought to inform you, are literally translated, I will uncover your ear. It's a way of saying that there is something previously unknown to his ear, which he's now going to reveal. The metaphor contains the idea that he would take the hair on his head and move it out of the way so that he would be able to hear. In essence, it's us saying, hey, I've got something to tell you that you probably didn't know. What he will tell this guy is noted in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. Now, this might lead to the idea that there was a large gathering of elders and people at the gate. But the intent of the words is that these 10 elders are representative of all of the people of the city, including all of the elders and all of the other inhabitants. What is being done is to be open knowledge to everybody. There's nothing concealed in the matter, and anyone who is listening is representative of all who are going to come to know what has transpired. It is, in essence, a matter which will be published for all to know about. There certainly may have been, and there could have been lots of people there. There could have been a lot of folks assembled at this gate. But his words go beyond all of them to every person that lives in the town. In his talk with Ruth of the previous night, there on the threshing floor, Boaz said these words to her. In the morning, it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. However, instead of mentioning Ruth, he's only brought up the matter of the land. He's acting on behalf of the name of Elimelech first without apparent regard for the women. Okay? It is the piece of land which belonged to Elimelech which must first be addressed. Now, this doesn't mean that these other matters are, aren't just as important, but that each has its place. The nearer relative, this guy known as the Goel, should be aware of the law. But if he's not, all aspects of it will still be brought out in due time. The individual laws within the law of Moses were given to ensure the proper working of the society. They were there to safeguard the property, family names, and to make sure things were handled fairly. Adherence to the laws was of paramount importance, just as it was once in America. I know that's gone by the wayside nowadays, but at this time in Israel, during their history, it was of paramount importance to adhere to the law. And I'd like you to think about that, because this is picture in Christ, right? Everything he does is in accordance with the law. Without adhering to laws, there's only chaos and disorder. And so every detail of the law was carefully adhered to for the good of the people, and that means all of the people. Leviticus 25 records this. It says, If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. This is exactly what has come to pass in Naomi's case. She became poor 
and she was determined to sell her property in order to live. If a close relative came by to redeem it, they could do so. If Naomi later became wealthy and able to redeem it, then she could do so. If there was no redemption of it, then in the year of Jubilee, which occurred every 50th year in Israel, it would be returned to the one who originally owned it, regardless of redemption. Naomi was poor. She possessed the land which belonged to her husband Elimelech, and therefore the law expected its redemption. This expectation was now being directed to this unnamed Goel, whom Boaz is addressing. It is a piece of property from the widow of Elimelech. It must have looked like a very good deal to him to increase his wealth in a very simple way. And so Boaz continues with his words. Verse 4 continues, If you will redeem it, redeem it. The fact that Naomi's land can be redeemed proves that it is her right as a widow to possess and or sell the land. Although she's childless and possibly too old to have more children, she carries within herself the embryonic or the emergent right of the heir. This is presupposed in Boaz's words and within the law itself. The opportunity to redeem is available and it has been presented to the nearest Goel. The question is basically, are you willing to redeem the land of Naomi in this way? What do you say? Verse 4 goes on, but if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. The Hebrew here actually says, and this is kind of important, it says, but if he will not redeem it. Nobody translates it this way. Nobody. But there is nothing to assume that this is not the intended meaning. He is addressing not only the Goel, but the elders. It is not only looking for his acceptance of the offer, but of their acknowledgement that his acceptance is either valid or invalid. And what this pictures, the term he fits perfectly to what is occurring. So, Make a little mark in your Bible that says he, because I'm certain that's correct. They made no error when they translated this or when they wrote it. It's the translators that have deviated from what's correct. In essence, Boaz has insisted to know whether the one who is expected to meet the demands of the law will in fact meet those demands. Keep thinking of Christ and somebody else. Keep thinking of that, okay? He has a right to know and he wishes to know. The law must be adhered to and the demands of the law must be settled. The expectation is the same in any properly functioning society. There is one standard and all are obligated to work within that one standard. To not do so is going to inevitably lead to anarchy, to chaos, and to societal breakdown, which is exactly what we're seeing in our own nation today. The law must be met. Boaz will now let him know why he's advising him about the land. Verse 4 continues, for there is no one to redeem it and I am next after you. Dear brother, you are closer to Elimelech than I, and the law affords you this marvelous opportunity to meet the demands of the law, if you can, and if you will. I am, in the integrity of my words, and in accordance with that great, honorable, and noble law, which has been given to us by God through the hand of Moses, giving you the opportunity to step forward and redeem. However, if you are unwilling or unable to do so, I have your back, dear brother. I'm next after you. Verse 4 continues, and he said, I will redeem it. The matter is settled. It's good, dear brother, that you were willing to take action and redeem the inheritance of our dearly departed brother Elimelech. What a fine example of Israelite values and integrity you are, that you have stepped forward and placed your foot on this wonderful inheritance, claiming it as your own, shows the caliber of man that you are. 
and what nice sandals adorn your feet. Good job, dear brother. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts, O God. I will follow you always and as best as I can. I will remember you with each step that I trod. Make your face upon your servant shine and teach me your statutes. This to you I pray. Then endless joy will certainly be mine and eternally I will walk in your light-filled way. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Instead, they are filled with deceit and lies. When I looked around, this is what I saw. Our third thought says, I cannot redeem. It's verses five and six. Verse five, then Boaz said, Boaz responds, there's more. There's a wee bit more. It's just a small thing, really, but it is the law and the law is the law. So good of you to be willing to fulfill every jot and every tittle of the law. Let me tell you also what the law requires. Verse five goes on. On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead. Within the law is the concept of entailment. The essential law dictionary defines entailment as a restriction of the way a property will be inherited that is different from what the ordinary rules of inheritance would dictate. The ordinary rules would apply if Elimelech's sons had lived. They would be the heirs. However, both died. Likewise, if neither daughter-in-law came from Moab, Naomi would be the sole owner of the land. As she was probably beyond childbearing years, the land would be sold to the nearest kinsman free from any encumbrances. But Ruth came with her. She attached herself and her future to Israel and to Israel's God in her remarkable words of chapter one. She said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She therefore possessed all the rights of an Israelite and was thus the rightful heiress of her dead husband Malone. Anyone who would redeem the inheritance would thus need to provide for the continuation of Malone's name as prescribed by the law, as Boaz continues to explain to the nearest Goel, verse 5 going on, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. This is what Ruth had desired, and this is what Boaz promised to her. The issue of the land, though separate from the family name, is inextricably tied to the name because of her standing within the law itself. Because Orpah didn't come with her, the land which belonged to Elimelech, in which partly was to belong to Kilion, is transferred to the state of Malone. This is what entailment dictates, and this is what the law mandates. The law was meticulously given to cover all contingencies that could arise. Ruth and her sad state because of the death of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malone was such a contingency which the law provided for. The land belonged to Naomi, but only Ruth was able to raise up the name of the dead through the bearing of a child. If the nearer Goel determined to not marry Ruth in order to raise up a child in the name of the dead, which is a requirement of the sale, then he would give up all of the other rights of the Goel as well. Because of Ruth, the two issues of land and name were indissolubly intertwined. The gracious nature of the law was intended to care for the name of the dead while also protecting the rights of the living. And believe it or not, all of these details, every single one of them form a greater picture which is found in redemptive history. 
verse 6. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. With only a few exceptions, and I'm one of them, with only a few exceptions, scholars are in agreement that the Goel claimed he could not redeem the land because it would involve increasing his expenses during his life to care for Ruth and probably Naomi. This then would involve unnecessarily dividing his inheritance with Ruth's firstborn, who would bear the name of Malone's family line. In essence, as Ellicott explains, it would therefore be like mortgaging one's own estate, and that for the benefit of another. However, this is not the case, okay? It is an incorrect analysis of the situation. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, the perpetuation of the name has nothing to do with the inheritance of the land and the one raised up. All it says is this, it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Nothing within the law required him to ruin his land or his monetary inheritance. It merely required that he perform this one duty of having a child through the widow so that the name of his dead brother would live. Rather than this faulty assumption, it is her state as a Moabitess which he's concerned about. This is why Boaz specifically brought up her nationality in the previous verse. That's what's going on here. Elimelech, Malone, and Kilion all died in Moab, and he's concerned about the same thing happening to himself and his family right now. It is a repetition, and it is an exact repetition of what's already occurred many generations earlier in this same family line when Judah perceived the same thing in his daughter Tamar. So I want to read this to you. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your dead brother, to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore the Lord killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest also he die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. This is the ruin that he's concerned about. Instead of the grace which is found in the law, which included even this Gentile convert, he was overwhelmed with superstition of what acquiring Ruth might mean. However, Boaz was not. He understood that the law included the Gentiles in the rejoicing over God's gracious provision. As it says, right in the law of Moses itself, this is in Deuteronomy 32, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Paul uses that very verse, and he ascribes it to the work of Jesus Christ in Romans verse 15, 10. And this leads to one of the reasons why Judah and Tamar are mentioned later in this chapter in a positive light. Verse 6 continues, you redeem my... Excuse me, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself. Boaz is granted the right of redemption and all that accompanies it. And thus he is also granted Ruth the Moabitess's wife. The heavy, difficult beatings of his heart over the anxiety of the moment surely turned to heavy beatings of his heart over joy and anticipation in securing the desire of that excited heart. To him would come this beautiful friend, this lovely Gentile and this woman of virtue who had stolen his heart from the moment he saw her there gleaning in the fields. Boaz has prevailed. If you know what's going on here and if you keep thinking of Christ, 
understand why I'm so emotional about this. It's so wonderful what Jesus has done for us. Verse 6 finishes with these words, for I cannot redeem it. Unfortunately, our verses today end not on a completely joyous note, but rather on a lie, which is in itself a violation of the very law that the Goel has been so meticulously presented. He had scrupulously followed the minute details of the law in order to skirt his responsibility to Ruth. And yet, he violated the law in the very process of clinging to its provisions. When he uttered the words, Kilo ikal ligol, for I am not able to redeem, he wasn't truthful. Rather, he could redeem, he simply refused to do so. In his lie, he disqualified himself from the right of redemption. Obedience to the law is more than mechanical, but it involves a higher law, the law of love. And that's what Jesus kept presenting to the people all along, and they could not understand it. And thus it is with each one of us in areas of our own life as well. We can, we simply don't. Those things that we should do and we know are right to do, but which we don't do, become a stumbling block to us. Sins of omission are no less grievous than sins of commission. And of all of the sins of omission that we could ever face, the greatest is to not receive the great gracious offer of God in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. Often that's a passive action. It's not an active one. We may not hate the thought of Jesus. We simply ignore what his life means to us. We love the world. We treat it as our inheritance. And we lose out on what is true life. As Matthew Henry says about this situation, many are shy of the great redemption. That means they, they fall short of it. They're not willing to espouse religion. They have heard well of it and they have nothing to say against it. They will give it their good word, but they are willing to part with it and cannot be bound to it for marring their own inheritance in this world. What a terrible thought that is that Matthew Henry gives us. We would give up the pleasures and the treasures of heaven for a short span of life pursuing nothing but the wind Jesus asked, what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The answer is none. And yet it is the path that most people take. Please don't be found on that path, but instead take the path which leads to life, to eternal life and a restored relationship to God. If you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, it is the most important decision that you can ever, ever make in your life. Without him, there is only the prospect of separation from God. But with him, there is that eternal life that he offers. So please give me a moment to explain to you and show you how you can be saved through his precious blood. I know most people here hear this every single week, but there may be somebody that's listening that doesn't. And that's why I want to make sure they understand how to receive Jesus Christ. It doesn't come just by saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to church the rest of my life. It comes by a change in a heart and a confession with your mouth. We're fallen in sin. That's what the Bible teaches us. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says, but the gift of eternal life is, uh, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, we're destined to die. We're already separated from God, but God offers us a gift. A gift is something we cannot earn. We cannot merit. We can't go to church and say, I've been going to church and so I'm going to be saved. We can't give money to a charity. We can't do deeds of goodness and think, I'm a good guy. God will accept me. As a matter of fact, what does that do? That actually separates you further from God because you're saying, I am the one that is performing my own salvation. When in fact, God has already sent his son to do it for us. 
So if we reject what he has done and try to do our own deeds, that's self-idolatry. He just simply asks us to say, I can't save myself and I need you, oh God, to save me. And I know you've done it through your son, Jesus, who fulfilled this law we've been talking about perfectly. In the last sermon, you're going to see how perfectly it all ties together. He's the one that did it on our behalf. And so what do we do? We simply hold out our hand and say, I want your salvation. That's all you need to do is just ask him to forgive you of your sins. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the Bible says that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what God would ask of you. Not to try to earn his favor, but to receive what he's already done for you. Just as we're seeing in this beautiful, beautiful story. Unbelievable stuff. Anyway, here's our closing verse for today. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2. Now think, think when I'm reading these words, how it ties in with what we've been doing today. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Are you seeing how it all fits together? Next week is uh, Ruth 4. It's verses 7 through 12. This is my favorite sermon title ever. I had to laugh when I thought this one up. I eschewed this shoe. It's our 11th Ruth sermon. <laughs> I, I thought it could be all, I shunned this shoe, but I like the word eschew better than shun. So I eschew this shoe. <sighs> the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. He knows your trials, your troubles, and your woes, and he's there with you through them. So cling to him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Our poem today is called To Perpetuate the Name of Elimelech. Now Boaz up to the gate went, and there he sat down. And behold, the close relative, the gent, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by the gate of Bethlehem town. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down kind of near. And he took ten men there of the elders of the town and said, Sit down here. And so they also sat down. And then he said to the close relative there at hand, Naomi, who has come back to Israel from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land, which belonged to her brother Elimelech, who in death fell. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back, for such is your right. In the presence of the inhabitants I am praying, and the elders of my people, yes, in their sight. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for I admit, there is no one but you to redeem it, as you can see. And I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. This I will do. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, as you have said, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, yes, from the wife of the dead, that the name of the dead through his inheritance will be perpetuated. This is what the law requires, just as I have stated. And the close relative said, I cannot for myself it redeem, lest I ruin it, ruin my own inheritance. This won't work out, it would seem. You redeem for yourself my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. I appeal to the law's exemption. In the requirements of the law, there is no hope. No man can meet its demands perfectly. It reflects God's standards far beyond the scope of our hopeless state, beyond all our ability. And yet, for God, all things are possible, we know. And so he stepped out of heaven's glory 
and united with human flesh in order to bestow the good news found in the gospel story. Yes, Christ took on the likeness of a man, and in this appearance to the cross he went, being obedient to the law to fulfill the plan from heaven to earth on this mission he was sent. He alone can redeem man who fell so long ago. In his grace and mercy he came to dwell among us, fulfilling the plan when to the cross he did go. All hail the Lamb of God, our precious Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, here we are in your glorious presence. And how wonderful it is to be here and to know that you have redeemed us by the work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, you know that there are a few prayer requests that were submitted over the past week uh, for people that attend this church, maybe not personally but uh, uh, or in person, but who attend via streaming. And one of them came this morning, and uh, we talked about that before church started. And we'd like to lift her and her family up for her trials and uh, for the sadness which has occurred there. And uh, we'd also like to thank you for the joy which is ahead for uh, one of the people that attends here. And uh, we thank you for that as well, and we praise you. And Lord, we ask that uh, you would just have your kind hand upon us in the week ahead to lead us, to guide us, to help us in all the things we do, to bring you glory and honor in those things. And Lord, we'll be sure to give you praise for each thing that you bestow upon us, each good bite of food that we take and each uh, precious flower that we walk by and see and smell maybe. Those things are so good that you've given us and we thank you for them and we will thank you for them. We want to give you praise and we want to give you glory and we want to give you honor because you are infinitely worthy of it and we look forward to infinite ages of doing so in your presence. We do love you and we thank you for all of this and the prospects ahead. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Get the instruction for the Lord's Supper from the book of 1 Corinthians, written by the hand of Paul, and certainly he got his uh, words from Luke because they so closely mirror what Luke wrote about the uh, taking of the Lord's Supper. Paul wrote these words there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over that before he broke it. He would have said these words, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu, and before I break this, just in case somebody's paying attention, first time I didn't put the sign there, and it's the first time I forgot this. I apologize about that, but if somebody's here with us, I want to make sure that they participate with us. He took the bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he also took the cup, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have blessed it with these words. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. This cup, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Paul away. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, as now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to participate in the Lord's table and to uh, share communion with you at this time and with each other so that we're identified as your servants. Help us to live that way throughout the week and uh, bring you honor and respect in how we uh, present ourselves and help us to be strong uh, voices for the gospel of Jesus. Help us to remember to hand out tracts when we can and to speak about his good deeds to those we come in contact with. And we'll be sure to uh, keep you in our hearts all from morning all the way until we go to bed at night and just to cherish our relationship with you. We thank you for this chance to celebrate that in the bread and in the wine. We love you and we praise you. We glorify you. We exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.